Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you'll find several speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Shelley. really grateful to be here and um, I just want to welcome everybody who introduced themselves as new or returning and people that are out of town that are here tonight and chip takers. Um, so the podcast meeting, uh, you know, it was really uncomfortable for me to say yes this time. I think I've spoken at the podcast meeting twice over the years, and I was really sitting in why was I uncomfortable with it, and part of the reason is that I don't believe anything I say anymore, and <laughs> what I mean by that is that based upon new information, based upon being a student of life, based upon exploring my own truth and being open to what God and the universe shows me, anything I say today can completely change. And so, interestingly enough, I don't think I've ever listened to anything recorded that I've shared before. So with that, I'm a very grateful member of this program, and I came into the program, into the rooms in 1978, and my absence date is October 1st, 1980. So I'm just a little shy, a little two weeks shy of 35 years after That is a a miracle I am incredibly grateful for, and it is, um, it's, my understanding of abstinence has certainly evolved over the years. Um, Today, abstinence to me is about refraining from addictive behavior. I, when I was asked to, to um, sign before I spoke, one of the things was kind of what category I fall in. And I am a juggler. I, you know, I am a cross-addictive person. I am somebody that has used more than just food. I mean, food was the first thing I used because it started really early in childhood for me. And the way that manifested was that as far back as I can remember, there was a a sadness that permeated my being. Um, And food was a comfort, but I hated myself for eating. I hated the way it felt. I hated the way it made me look. And so I learned really early the behavior of sneaking and hiding. And so I was not somebody out, gregarious, eating, having a great time. I was an isolator with my food, or I had a binge buddy or two, um, but it was something that was rather torturous for me, even at a really young age. And I can remember one very vivid memory of um, my parents uh, played cards, I don't know if it was a bridge game or whatever, but back in the day there were these bridge tables and there were pockets where you could put snacks, 
you know, besides the cards and the chips. And I just remember walking around this table, this round table, and just stick, you know, stuffing my bathrobe pockets with the food that I was not allowed to eat. And that was that was part of it. You know, my mom, I'm sure she wanted to just help. Um, really tried to control and manage my eating. And so there were forbidden foods for Shelly. Now I'm really dating myself. The milkman delivered homogenized milk for my sister and skim milk for me. Um, my mother hid food from me. Um, there was a tremendous amount of shame attached to how I looked. And so just in terms of numbers, I was not fat. Um, I carried at one time maybe 20, 25 pounds more than I was comfortable with. And as a child, you know, a little bit over those charts and a, a little bit chubby, but when I look back on those pictures, you know, I can remember um, a high school dress that I just loved, this red and white polka dot dress, and it was needing to be shortened. And my mom was standing with me, and I wanted a certain length, and she was saying, you know, no, it'll make your thighs look too big. And when I look back on that picture, I was thin. So I don't know what she was seeing, but I was seeing what she was seeing. And I felt it. Um, and clearly there were times when I was, was overweight. Um, so for me, food was about sneaking and hiding and feeling shameful about it and about needing to look good. My family was about needing to look good. And, and how you looked was pretty much everything. How you felt didn't really matter, wasn't really questioned, but it, how you looked really mattered. If you looked good, then it was good. And so, for example, I had a sweet 16 at like the spot at the time, beautiful hotel. And my mother was an interior designer and the flowers were perfect and the room was perfect. And a week later, my father left the marriage. You know, he just like left the marriage, he left the house. But we looked good on the outside and the effort to keep that facade up was enormous. And our job, my sister and my job, was to look good for my mother. My mother was, was a narcissistic woman who needed us to look good because it made her look good or it made her look bad. Um, so when I came into these rooms, I was um, 23, and I came in and I got very um, concerned that I wasn't fat enough for my first meeting and I showed up and I found out early on that it's not about how much you are carrying in terms of weight, but it's how much my heart was carrying, it's how much my head was carrying, and that this disease is very much for me, it centers in my mind. And it's centered in my mind then and it centers in my mind today. Um, I found laughter in that room. I saw this 12 steps in frames in that room, the office. I, I started my program in the Valley. And in that OA office, when I saw the 12 steps, uh, if you're new, there, I'm sure, I imagine you're familiar with the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they've been adapted for Overeaters Anonymous. 
And I saw the word God. For me, this was not a scary thing. This was a reminder of the best friend that I had left long ago. Because growing up in that house where I was so frightened of my mother that I pulled my hair out of my head, that I bit my fingernails till they bled, that I developed physical tics out of nervousness as a child, that I ate compulsively, that I started using marijuana at the age of 12. I was so afraid in that situation growing up in my home that I, I used whatever I could use. And I turned to God as a child, didn't know what I was doing. There was no Bodhi tree for me yet. There was no master to follow or anything like that. There was something inside of me that needed something, and I instinctively and organically turned to it as a child. And I did call it God. And I remember writing to God, and I remember sitting in my room, this perfect bedroom, and being, having that, that sadness I talked about, just that melancholy sense that was always my companion. Um, always my companion. There's a song by Gautier, and there's a line in it that I, I, I think about a lot, and it says, we can become addicted to a certain kind of sadness. And that just so spoke to me. And I sit there in that perfect little yellow room, and um, there was one particular time when I don't know what I said or what I asked for or what I did, but I was so filled with a sense of peace and stillness that it scared me. I mean, it literally frightened me. I didn't know what it was that I was experiencing. And so when I got here and I started working this program by working the 12 steps and started having spiritual experiences, started having a sense of there was something within inside of me, not just outside of me, but within inside of me that was waking up, that I became to rely, and I do come to rely on it more and more, more and more. And that it really is the only reality that exists for me today. If, if I'm... So, okay, so what happened? So I, I, I came and I started an abstinence. And I didn't really know what that was. And quite frankly, I'm not sure OA knew what it was at the time. You know, there, was, there were a bunch of sheets going around different colors and names and gray sheets and orange sheets and moderate mealers and right ways and wrong ways. And OA was maturing and so was I. And it took a couple of years for me to get to the doctor's opinion. And the doctor's opinion is where I discovered how I could understand what the physical malady was, how it manifested, and how I could take food, which was something I need as a human being to eat, and substitute my alcoholic foods as though it were alcohol, because it is for me. It alters perception reality. When I read the doctor's opinion filling in my particular addictive substances, that chapter made sense. It was like, it said to me, I cannot safely use that substance in any form. So we were talking about broccoli. We were talking about lettuce for me. We were talking about my addictive substances. And it told me clearly what would happen if I did. That it would create a, a, a mental obsession and, and a compulsion that was so far beyond my ability to control. 
and that that would set the ball in motion. The, the literature told me when I took my steps that fear is the chief activator of all my defects of character. That that at some point there that Shelley stopped trying to figure out this program and work Shelley's program and started working the program as I understand it, and that's all any of us can do. You know, we're all always going to be working the program through our own perception and understanding. I had a very significant spiritual experience two years in, and it was interesting because I was doing better, feeling better, looking better, but what had happened, it was as though somebody had taken a match and lit a little fire within inside of me that had such a longing for connection to a power greater than myself that I couldn't satisfy it. I couldn't even satiate it with the steps. I was not satiated. I was hungry for more. And there was that same sadness that was with me. It was like, I don't know how to... to really feel free. And I I found a way, I don't think I found it, I think it found me, a way of practicing step 11 uh, that I still practice today. And that was given to me when I was 25 years old and I'm about to turn 60. And I've been practicing that all these years. And it is a way to take my attention, turn it inside, turn it inside and sit with my sweet self and beyond. Beyond the thoughts, beyond the ideas, beyond the identity I think I am, and just sit and, and receive. And sometimes I don't think I feel anything. But there, it's never a bad day and never a bad idea when I sit and I make the effort to sit and to receive. Because what I've learned, that what I told you two years in, I begged, I begged God to be more connected. I begged. So the meditation was given to me, and I saw that if I can remain a beggar, that's my ticket. Beggar for what? For me, it's also synonymous with thirst. If I am not thirsty for a connection with a higher power, I'm not going to make any effort. And I have to say that, you know, having the disease of compulsive overeating and the other addictions that I do have, particularly um, I'm free of marijuana and subsequently alcohol, um, I think it was that sadness that kept me seeking, even though I was abstinent. Even though I was abstinent. The... The, um, the thing that's changed over these last number of years, five years in particular, but the last couple, two, three years, is that I have reached a level of vulnerability that I was never willing, never willing to feel. And when I mean that, it's like vulnerable with, I've been willing to see what I've been trying to hide from myself. It's like, it's been trying to break through, and I look or I don't. I acknowledge it or I don't. And the truth they tell me in here will set me free. So the more that I have been willing to sit with what has been true for me and not true for me, 
bias grown. So specifically, like I would tell you, I actually said this out loud, that nothing happened in my 50s. Like nothing. But I got married at 50. I launched my daughter, or she, she launched herself. My mother became very ill, and I spent two and a half years walking with her through that and ultimately burying her. My grandmother, who I was closest to on the planet, the mother of my heart, passed away six months within that. My grandmother was 101. My mother had just turned 80. I became financially responsible. I started really being willing to uncover. So one of the things that I've known for a long time is that I was molested. But the person that molested me, it was too unbearable. So I kept going to sleep around it. I kept going to sleep around it. But recently, I had a major panic attack driving. This is very recent. This is within the last month. And I was yelling, something happened to me. Something happened to me. And I chose to talk about it this time and not go back to sleep. And the interesting thing about it is that I don't feel any anger because I have done a lot of work around it while I was awake. I don't feel any anger towards the person. I honestly don't. I feel sorry. I feel like this, what's going on for me right now is I don't eat no matter what, I don't pick up a joint, I don't pick up a drink, I don't spend irresponsibly, I work my steps and right now what I'm working on is that I've never been so aware of the compassion I feel for that little girl that grew up in that house and I'm, you know, God love my mother who was a narcissistic woman and a, a very confused father, and it's time to take care of her. And it seems crazy to be 35 years in, because back in the day we came here with inner child teddy bears, and there was that phase, and you know, so there's been lots of self-care. But I, for me right now, this is about, not about anybody else. This is about, it is non-negotiable. Like, I, it doesn't matter if somebody's feelings are hurt if I say, no, I'm not coming to that family dinner. Or, yes, I am coming to the family dinner. It's about there's nothing today, today, that I'm willing to do to put myself in, in a situation that feels inauthentic, where I cannot be my true self. And where I can't tell the truth is where I can't be my authentic self. And so there's been lots of shifts and changes in relationships in my life. I'm not interested in taking on a new identity as woman molested or incest survivor. I've been spending the last five years seeing how false all the identities I've walked around with are. Including abstinent person, 12-stepper, woman, mother, wife, sister, because at the end of the day, when I sit to close my eyes to receive this gift of connection with this energy keeping me alive, breath by breath by breath, there's no gender, 
there's nothing there but pure life itself. And it doesn't matter what what I have or what I don't have. I used to sit up in my recovery pictures were a lot about, you know, I've been absent X amount of time and I'm married and I have a child and like all these like markers that would be considered kind of worldly success, or at least for an addict, worldly success. I, because I didn't think I could ever do that, you know, be mature enough to be in a healthy relationship or have a child or all those things. But, so I would say these were things that I was very, very proud of and very grateful for. And today it's like I rarely talk about it. What do I have to do with that? Absolutely nothing. For four and a half years I experienced infertility. That was one of my chapters in this program in Alzheimer's. My ex-husband was infertile. And I didn't know if I'd ever have a child, and I did a lot of things in that four and a half years, a lot of footwork. And if there's one thing I learned, it's that I don't create life. <laughs> there is nothing I could do except continue to show up and take direction. And there was either going to be a child or there wasn't, one way or another. There was or there wasn't. There wasn't this way, maybe another way, maybe no way. But what do I have to do with this? incredible young woman that I would call daughter. So another really important thing that's happened for me, if it supports any of the mothers out there, you know, empty nest hit me hard because I was very identified as being a mother. It was something I had done well. It was something I felt I had done right, or at least I had done the best I could. And when she started to move away and away, and I happened to have a nomadic daughter who is an incredibly free spirit who is Somebody asked me, I think today, where she lives, and it's like, wherever she feels like. <laughs> that would not have been my plan, but she's the perfect teacher for me. I mean, I haven't seen her in months. I'm going to take her away on my birthday, see her in a couple of weeks, and I think she's headed for the French office to bartend through species. That's the last I heard. She's going to ditch her car she just got, probably. Not my plan. I'm going to have Thanksgiving dinner with. I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to what? Pink slip on her life, given. God gave me the pink slip on my life. And what I choose to do with it is give it back. And anything that holds me hostage, like for instance, I love my little house. I call it a tree house. We bought it almost two years ago. And I suffer from fear of financial insecurity. And not without there being some concrete, not crazy bought And I got so bottomed out on being worried of losing this house that I decided to, because when I'm afraid of losing it, I've already lost it. I'm already living in what it would feel like to not have the house, except I still have a roof over my head. But all the feelings are there. So I gave that house back to God. And I have to say that how did I forget something so simple and so powerful? It's not mine. You know, and it's like when I, in my prayers and in my meditation, when I give God God's house, it's like all I experience is gratitude because I love this sweet little place. 
And right now I'm doing some things to remodel it a little bit. And maybe I'll have it a week longer, ten weeks longer. I don't, a year, ten, maybe I'll die there. But it's not my house. When it's my house, I suffer. I suffer from the pain of the attachment of all that. When it's my daughter, I suffer. When it's my food, I suffer. When it's my idea and my wants and my desires, I suffer. And when I want what is what's happening, which is what I've come to believe is God's will. God's will, I don't have to search for. God's will, stand in front of a microphone. Right now. I don't have to wonder what God's will is for me. Right now. This is it. And this is all I've got. There isn't anything else. There isn't another moment. There just isn't. So I never have to wonder what God's will for me is. And that's very, very peaceful. And I hear that question a lot in here. How do we know what God's will is? I don't know. I just It's just become very simple to me. It's like... You know, how do I know I'm thirsty? When I open this up and take a drink. My mouth is really dry. But apparently I'm not thirsty. Because I'm not drinking. I'll, you know, I'll know I'm thirsty when I open this up and I take a drink. And I love the simplicity of living like that. Um, how long does this go? So I do want to leave time for, for some questions. There are new people here. But what I, what I think I want to... Let's see. Let's, let me just get quiet and see. You know, I'm here by grace. I'm completely here by grace. I'm being kept alive by grace. How long I'm here, how long I live, God's business. How I choose, how I live my life, given all the incredible tools, these 12 steps, these 12 traditions, the nine tools, my meditation, all the things God's given me, if I don't use them, as I have free will. But that's my business. And what you think of me, and what you do, and don't do, and when you do it, that's your business. And I do know that if I get into your business, and I do, because the head just goes there. It just judges. That's what it does. Give it a little time, it'll find a problem with heaven. So, you know, it's like, not my business. I'm out of a job. That's a big burden to be in your business. God's business, way above my pay grade. And how do I know I'm in God's business? Usually, because I'm in fear. When I'm in, it's like being in a pool in the deep end, not knowing how to swim. I mean, your body tells you, yikes. You know, I'm in above my head here. I'm in God's business. And when I'm in my business, there's a simplicity, there's a peace. There's a knowing, and that most importantly, there's not a desire to pick up something to mutilate my body. And as I shared with you, I did that in many ways. Didn't know another way. Pulling my hair out of my head left ball spots. Ripping and chewing my nails left scabs and bleeding. And, and shame, and I would curl my hands and not let anybody see. You know, eating more food than my body needs distorted it. Um, Blinking my eyes, pulling my eyes. I mean, you know, this was not God's will for me. And the peace that I feel today, or lack thereof, always stems from my thinking. Without exception. 
and I have tools today to sit with my own mind, mainly pen and paper. I do a lot of writing, a lot of writing, more than ever. And I, I stop the war in my head by putting it on paper. And it's amazing. How do you stop a thought? Put it on paper. One thought at a time. That's all it is. One thought at a time. So, if you're new, welcome. You know, I heard keep coming back. Give it, give it, give it, give us a chance. Six meetings. Leave what you don't need or want. I love that they told me to keep an imaginary trash can by my seat and throw away what I didn't want. Um, and I decided to do that, but not to throw away the trash can. And I found myself over the years digging out of that trash can that I didn't throw away things that I had tossed in when the time was right for me to use them. And if you have any doubt whether or not you're a real compulsive overeater, there's a test for that, a self-test, where you can take the answer those questions. Because I have found for me that coming out of denial, there's a chapter in the big book about that, has been really important. And when I'm in denial, I'm in my disease. So with that, I would like to invite any questions or comments, or not comments, but questions, anything anybody might have on their mind. Yes. Okay. Thank you for that question. So what does my program look like now? Um, I sponsor seven women. Um, so my, my morning starts out with a beautiful woman who calls me never a minute too early or too late to rely on it. And I talk to these beautiful women most every most every day, not the weekends. There's most most days. Um, before they call, I spend quiet time before I even get out of bed. Not my soul meditation, but I spend quiet time. I say my first three steps. Um, I have a plan for my food for the day that is. Um, void of my alcoholic foods. Uh, meetings, right now, I moved about two years ago, and I, I I go to about two meetings a week right now. That's lower than I usually do. Usually three was like my least. But I also go to, um, I go to other 12-step meetings. So I go to more than two meetings a week, but two OA meetings. Um, I pray, I meditate. I, I love the readers. Um, I study with my sponsors. We're in different books. I'm in different books with all of them. Love studying. What was my food abstinence in the beginning? How has it changed over time? Well, in the beginning, I did try the three meals a day, nothing in between. And um, th that did not work for me. Um, so my food. Plant, my, my absence today in terms of how, how often I eat is three meals a day up to two optional fuel. I like to call it optional fuel, not snacks. And those are, and I don't usually use use it, but they're there because there's never a reason I have to break my absence in terms of I'm in, and I have been, in Australia or in a different country or a different time zone or something. And, and I need legitimately to have a piece of fruit, and my optional fuels are defined. So it's not just what I feel like having, it's a fruit or it's a protein portion um, or vegetable. Today, I'm really clear what my alcohol foods are. 
I cannot eat sugar successfully. Um, I just cannot eat sugar successfully. And I don't use alcohol, and I don't use marijuana, no matter what. I was never a drug, like a re recreational pill dropper or anything like that, but I don't use drugs recreationally. And it hasn't changed in years, because when I re read that doctor's opinion, it was really clear. If there's something that becomes a problem, then I need to talk about it, and I need to to be willing to put that on my asterisk. Okay, thank you. So the first question is, how do I define a binge? I don't even worry about that. <laughs> because I have, a de I have a defined abstinence. So that's what's so incredibly wonderful about having a defined abstinence. So in other words, when I sit with a sponsor or myself, and I draw a big circle on a piece of paper, and everything in that circle is abstinent, and anything outside of it is not. And I describe to my sponsors and myself that think about that circle as like it's made of the hardest material on earth. Can I slip through it? I don't understand slip. Can I slip through it? No. I'd have to try to break my way out of it. I'm either in or I'm out. So I don't have to worry about a binge. Now, in terms of the quantity of food I may eat within my abstinence, I mean, we're sneaky. You know, this is a sneaky disease. So there are times my meals do feel like it's more than I need it. Um, but it's not a binge. So I don't leave it as vague as I'm binging or I'm not binging. The second question that you had was in terms of being cross-addictive and, and the alcohol and marijuana and what came first and how I deal with that. Um, I did get abstinent first and I did have lots of time in the program over the 30, almost 35 years of not using, like years at a time. And then I would pick it up again because it would be okay. Um, and then it just wasn't. And so I currently have, and, and then I went to a program, raised my hand. Um, so I currently have about seven, almost seven and a half years. But I don't see that as an option today. Whereas it was every other time I reframed it. So, you know, I just remember being new and they say, you know, start with the thing that's killing you the most, you know, and we all have to kind of decide what that is, you know, and I think that there's no right or wrong way, there's just the right way for each one of us as individuals. What, if we're really in the grip of something, address the thing that's really taking us out, it's the most dangerous thing. Isn't that wonderful? So, how after all these years do I self-soothe? Well, first of all, I self-soothe. I don't expect it to come externally. And that's huge. And for me, the distinction is, you know, that it, and I, I mean, to me, it's an insane thought that it could. My husband could want to give me a hug or rub my feet or, but that's not going to soothe me. So how I self-soothe, first and foremost, is that if I'm very upset, if I'm experiencing a strong emotion, I want to sit and get quiet and, and notice what my thinking is and get that on paper. Because I can't sit with God quietly while all that's going on in my head. So I first have to kind of deal with getting out the turmoil that I'm experiencing in my head. And then I would self-soothe by... It could be many ways. It could be meditation. It could be the writing. It could be taking a walk. Or, uh, 
by just talking kindly to me and not trying and not creating wreckage in somebody else's life, not being that tornado that the big book talks about, roaring through. You know, I'm doing great, but you know, now I'm going to roar through your life. So, yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> you know. Um, it took a long time, and you know, well, you know. Here's the thing: I, I, I've lost the language, or losing the language, for things being good or bad, right or wrong. And so, I mean, I worked and made amends to my mom, and still held resentments, and like both resentments and loss of inventory. So I did it. I didn't. I have nothing creative to tell you. I worked the twelve steps, and I did inventory work, and I did specific inventory work on mom. But I have to say that when she was diagnosed with cancer, um, three different times, and I was the least likely, if, if there was a vote, people say, who's the least likely person to be like walking through every step of this? It would not have been me. It was the, mo- it was the greatest blessing. It was the greatest, <laughs> the greatest blessing. Because what I got to see is that, um, Gosh, she was an amazing, strong, proud. And I, as I eulogized her, I remember saying she was always the mother. It didn't matter how many tubes were coming out of her mouth or what she was dealing with. She was always the mother. She was remarkable. She was remarkable. Um, and But I want to end with this, is that I have a better relationship with my mom since she died, and not because she died, but because I have gone back to question those beliefs that I had about the relationship since she has died, and come to find out that so many of the things I thought I needed to forgive her for, I had asked backwards. Oh, oh, it did it. Not supposed to do that. My apologies. My apologies. I had it backwards. I was everything in the moment that I thought she was. When I thought she was cruel to me, I sat with that situation. I saw I was, it was as true that I was cruel to her. And that was humbling and right-sizing and healing. I want to apologize. I, I'm sorry about saying that word. And um, I want to thank you very, very much for the opportunity.